trigger warning, this podcast contains a deep discussion about grief and loss, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vents, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. I am your host, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. I am very, very excited for this week's episode, guys, because I'm checking in with someone who is literally a part of so many people's lives through the job he does. When I was growing up, two people, Lisa Mazumba and Ellie Crisell, were the main presenters on CBBC's Newsround. Maybe I remember it with rose-tinted spectacles, but they always delivered the news in an easily digestible way, never talked down to their audience of kids and teenagers, and are widely shared in viral nostalgia memes and tweets by back-end millennials like me. My special guest for this episode is one of the current Newsround presenters, DeGraft Mensa. DeGraft joined the BBC in 2017 and had various freelancer roles and jobs before he was taken on as a freelance journalist for Radio 1's Newsbeat programme. After he got his foot in the door, he took a shot and went for the open role at Newsround and amazingly, he got it and he has never looked back. He's also the co-host of the Radio 1 Extra podcast, If You Don't Know, where he and his co-host Roshan Roberts talk about the important issues of the day that affect the Afro-Caribbean and black community in the UK, whether that be health, sport, music, sexuality, mental health and much more. In this episode, we discuss DeGraff's media journey and how he became to be the man that is shaping young people's lives and how they digest the news. We talk about the mental health blip he had before he started the podcast and how, in his words, he felt like I shouldn't be where I am at this point in my life. This thought began to very briefly affect his mental health in a very negative way. He overthought obsessively about it until he realised he needed to seek out professional support and help. We talk about that journey, how he got better and destigmatizing therapy itself too. We also talk about his mental health journey, his life growing up in Milton Keynes, the grief he went through when he lost his uncle in 2019, going public with his mental health, having COVID-19 and social media. So this is how my check-in with DeGraff Mensa went. DeGraff Mensa, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, mate. Thank you so much for coming on, letting me check in with you. Despite what people might think, I did actually used to work for the BBC, but we used to work in very different buildings and we never actually mm. met in person because it's a massive, massive place. So <laughs> how are you, bro, first of all? And you know the podcast you've been doing if you don't know has not been going on for too long so how's the feedback been to it you know what i feel like this year in particular has been just loads of work <laughs> i feel like i've never been in a moment of my life where i had so much going on i mean the podcast you're right hasn't been going on for that long i think we are i want to say a year into it but who knows i'm bad at numbers but you know what it's going all right it's you know we've had so many sort of important conversations on there and so many conversations that I never thought 
we'd ever be having. I mean, it wasn't until what last week we had a conversation with Sean Paul. I like, saw I the never, video. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought in my life that me and Sean Paul would just be on Zoom. Sean in Jamaica and me in London. And I, I actually got what's funny is anyone who listens back to that episode, they're always like, "The graph." You spoke to Sean Paul far too casually. Like, you call him Sean as if you know him from somewhere. Like, no, nah, that's my brother Sean. Like, that's Sean, you know. But everything's going, everything's going all right. Although I'm definitely looking forward to a Christmas break because mm. I'm tired. Man. I hear you. I hear you. I'm really excited for this pod, mate, because I hope it will show my listeners. I hope it will show your audience mm. sort of a new and definitely more holistic side of you that they can maybe take forward mm. in the future. So, Without further ado, shall we crack on with the show? Let's go for it. When we spoke off air, mate, you wanted to describe this first topic as media slash presenting. So tell me how you got into the industry, why you felt inspired to become a media slash presenter and where your love for it began. So where do I even start with this? (laughs) I mean... For anyone who knows me well, like all my close friends, they would know that as a kid, I loved all things TV. And I was a bit of a, a sad kid uh, in the sense that I was obsessed with CBBC, as in I would always apply to be part of CBBC shows. I got many rejections, but I also managed, you know, I ended up on a couple like CBBC programs, even as a kid. Um, get your own back? I t- oh, I wish it was get your own back. I wish. But no, they didn't say yes to me. I wanted to apply for Dick and Dom in the Bungalow, oh. but I remember, yeah, my mum was like, you're not going on that show. <laughs> like, my mum is a Ghanaian mother. She said, you want to go on TV to do up and down and just uh, throwing food? No, you're not doing it. Um, but, you know, I ended up doing, oh, what was the show? There was a show called Exchange. Yes, with Ade. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a Blue Peter Book Award judge when I was in year seven. And this is the embarrassing one. I might show you the footage if you're lucky one day, but I was part of a, <laughs> it was a Doctor Who spin-off show called Totally Doctor Who. I remember and it. Th- yeah, there was a quiz show element called The Huru, where you go, two Doctor Who fans go head to head. And so I went head to head with somebody and did awfully. Like, did so bad that you'd watch the clip and think, why did you, why do you do this to yourself? <laughs> Like, why did you, why did you embarrass yourself like that? But I mean, it just showed that as a kid, I was desperate for like TV and all that kind of stuff. Mm. So went to university, did journalism. And, you know, I had dreams, as many people do, of after university, finding yourself straight into a job that never happened. I actually went back to my part-time job at River Island. And shortly after River Island, I was a manager at Clark's. <laughs> so, you know, I was I was grinding. I was grinding. Going back to the dancehall but... culture there with Sean Paul. <laughs> yeah, honestly, honestly. I wish, I wish, I wish I had a love for Clark's when I worked at Clark's. I should have bought a lot more things than I did with my discount. But um, <laughs> alas, all I had were desert boots that I never wore. But after that, it was a lot of me freelancing and me shadowing. So... Luckily, I got the opportunity to shadow at BBC Five Live. I did some magazine writing, which in hindsight, I look back and I probably shouldn't have done it because it wasn't paid. But, you know, I'm a student at that point. I'm just like, anything it takes, I'll do it. Like, whatever it takes, I'll do it. So I was just building up my portfolio, building up experience. Eventually managed to freelance at Radio One Newsbeat, which was amazing. Like, I loved my time there. And I remember, it's funny, how I ended up at Newsround. Now, honestly, the way it happened was mad because there was this one week where my friend Govinda 
she kept telling me, oh, DeGraff, you should message the new genre editor and see if you can shadow there. Like, I think it'd be amazing. I was like, why am I going to message the editor? No. Because I knew I wanted to present, but I'm like, I'm not going to end up presenting at the age of what I was like 22 at that point. I'm not going to do You didn't that. feel ready to um, become Lizzo. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah. yeah. I, I couldn't form into Lizzo <laughs> yet. Like, I was like, I need to... I need to marinate for a bit. Like, I, I'm not there yet. But then what happened was she kept pressuring me. She was like, Degraff, you should do it, you should do it, you should do it. I was like, fine, I'll do it. But I never did it. And then I think the day after she asked me for the last time, we randomly got an email in the office saying, news round, they're looking for a new presenter. And she falls it to me and she goes, Degraff, this is a sign. You need to apply for this. So I was like, yeah, I'll apply, but I ain't going to get it. I remember getting the call saying that I was a new presenter. I remember sort of thinking, huh? Are you sure you're talking to the right person? Like me? Like, nah, ain't, ain't no chance. So yeah, that's how I got into presenting. But you know what? The reason why I don't say I'm just a present, I because I do, I feel like I do so much more mm, than just presenting. Like I am a journalist. I am a reporter. And I just love chatting. Like over to the point, I always get told to shut up. Like I talk, I talk <laughs> often by my, you know, often by my mom. My mom's like, you talk too much, man. And I'm like, yeah, but you brought me into this life. I didn't, I didn't ask to be here. You brought me here. So. I just want to quickly go back to what you said about working in management to graph and rejection mm. in particular, because rejection is something that we all have to go through and you have to deal with it pretty regularly whilst you're applying for those journalism roles when you were at Clark. Mm. Did you ever think about what your life might have been like if you'd given up and just stayed in Clark's or stayed in River Island? And and tell the listeners as well about that one particular rejection, if you can, for a social media role. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. so that particular rejection, to this day, I can't forgive them because it did me dirty. (laughs) I won't mention the actual place, but it was, you know, it was a big newspaper and they had a social media role. And I remember thinking like, I probably don't have a chance, but I'm going to apply for it anyway. So I spent ages doing my CV, putting up the application, making it perfect. I applied and it was like literally within like an hour, they rejected me. But then... I was like, but the listing is still open. Like, and it was still open for like another couple of that weeks. And I'm rude. like, I'm like, if you're going to reject me, at least, at least wait a bit. <laughs> I've just sent you my application. <laughs> like, you can't have hated me that much. But you know what? During that time period, I faced a lot of rejection. Like, I kept applying for jobs and just getting rejected, 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 rejected. But I never once thought, what would my life turn out if I stayed at Clark's? Because in, I think me growing up the way that I've grown up, with the type of parents that I grew up with, giving up never felt like an option. Like in my Mom's head- wouldn't have let was, you. No, no, no. Mumsy would not have <laughs> let me. Mumsy would be like, well, you want to stay at Clark's? Nah, there's, <laughs> there's no way. But I think I've had this sort of, like in my heart of heart, and I'm not even trying to say this to sound like cocky or anything, but in my heart of hearts, I knew I'd get, maybe I didn't know, obviously didn't know I was going to be a new genre presenter. I didn't know I'd get to all these amazing things, but I knew I'd get close to where I wanted to be. I couldn't allow myself to give up. But I can't lie, there were there were times where it got close. When you're on like your 50th rejection, mm. you're like, mm, this is... <laughs> and you're seeing like your other friends getting into jobs and whatnot. And, you know, you're just out here selling shoes and no disrespect to anyone who sells shoes, but it weren't for mm. me. There was one day where I realized it weren't for me. It was, bless her, a woman came in, an old woman, because during the morning shift, it was always elderly yeah. people that came into Clark's. She came in to try on a p- new pair of shoes, but... She didn't have the strength, I guess, to try it on for herself. So she needed help. So I was like, cool, I'll help you. Telling this story always makes me feel queasy. She didn't have socks on and we had run out of little pop sockets. So I'm now helping her put the shoes on. 
with my bare hands. Like, this is just flesh on flesh. Like, and as I'm helping, I remember, like, dead pieces of skin Ooh. just sort of falling into my hands. That's a bit sticky and still. In, in that moment, I'm like, I can't work here. <laughs> I can't. I've suffered too much. I've suffered too much to now suffer some more. Mm. But yeah, it was just, you know, there were moments where the rejection got a lot. But it's what I tell a lot of uni students when they talk to me about applying. I'm like, listen, it sucks and it's upsetting. You're literally going to feel useless, but you've just got to keep going because the worst thing you could do is give up. Mm. We talked about Lizo there and Lizo and Ellie mm. are children's TV icons for my generation to graft. I'm, sure, I'm, sure I'm sure they were for you too. Did you <laughs> did you feel that weight of expectation before you got the role? And then when you got the role itself, did you lean on Lizo? Did you talk to him? Did you message him? Did he message you back? Like what was the process there? You know what? I wish. So there were moments where so I used to work in the main BBC building in London, New Broadcasting House. And I remember the first time I saw Lisa. I remember mine as well. I, oh. Oh, I didn't even speak to him, but it felt like seeing a mega celebrity. <laughs> I was like, yo, that's Lizo. <laughs> like, what? And he's just in the canteen getting his food. And I'm like, what? That's man like Lee. Do you know what this man has done? And like, I was so just gassed. But, you know, I think I've only ever had, I feel like one interaction with him. And I think it was on Twitter. I tweeted something about Newsround and, you know, the people have come before me. And I think I added him and then he responded. Even when I got a response from him, I'm like, yo, Lisa responded to me. Like, that's, that's Lisa Mazimba, okay? Like, put some respect on his name. But you know what I did? I feel like I feel the weight a lot more now mm. than I did at the start. Like, don't get me wrong, at the start, I knew it was an important job. Like, I knew I'd be doing incredible things and I knew in a way I was going to be a role model, I guess, for some kids. Mm. But I didn't truly understand it because I, I hadn't really done the role. I was still new to it. Whereas now, like, there were so many experiences that I've forgotten that I look back at and I'm like, this is an important job. I remember we did an interview with a girl and she basically, she wrote to Disney because she realized princesses didn't have glasses or she never saw a Disney princess with glasses. And she was like, you know, there's such a stigma behind wearing glasses. People think they associate it with words like nerdy and all this kind of stuff. And I just want to see a princess with glasses. So she wrote a letter to Disney and we went to go interview her. And she was part of the nicest family I've ever met. And I remember doing the interview and her little brother had run off somewhere and then run back and mid interview gives me a little piece of paper. And I was like, oh, I opened up the piece of paper and then, bless it, the message is funny, but it was just like, you're the best to graft ever. And I just sort of read that and I'm like, hey, I'm going to cry. I'm like, I'm going to cry. And then even after that moment, we, so we, funnily enough, her and her family were in Media City, where I'm based now in Salford. And they text my assistant producer to say, hey, we're in the area and... Sarah then messages me saying, oh, they're in the area. Why don't you go say hi to them? I was like, cool, I'll go say hi to them. And then I met the girl again and she ended up buying glasses that were just like my glasses. Cause she was like, oh no, I just think you're like, it was in like in a moment like that when you're like, oh, I'm a, I am someone that these kids look up to. And for me, that's a role that I take super You're going to be there, Lisa. Like, if I can so. live up yeah. to Lisa, like, I'll, I can only dream. Mm. I can only dream. But it's like little things like that where I realise that this is an important job and I never take that for granted. I never want to sort of ruin that because I'm like, I've always loved 
kids and loved you know i've always had young kids in my family mm. um as annoying as they are i love them a lot of them are grown now i saw my little cousin recently and he's now i want to say like 14 15 deep voice <laughs> he's taller than me i would always tell him i remember when you were little i could pick you up and doss you anywhere man like i used to, <laughs> i used to throw you around like it's nothing and these times if he pushes me i'm finished yeah. <laughs> I'm only five foot eight, man. Like, I can't. Oh, I hear you on that. I, I hear you on the under six foot problem. Yeah. I hear you on that. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, can't, I can't relate. I can't relate to height. But no, I just, I do feel the weight of it now. And I just think it's such an important job mm. that I'm, I'm grateful to do. When it comes to fame and this new mm. level of acclaim or recognition that you have now to grasp, yeah. you talked a bit to me off air about imposter syndrome. And you've said a little bit already mm. about how you, when you got the role, it didn't feel quite real. So, Mm. Can you tell me a little bit how imposter syndrome has affected your mental health? As I believe it was the first mental difficulty you'd had. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I feel like especially being young, black, you know, from a working class family, you find yourself in spaces where you're like, yo, should I be here? Mm. And why am I here? And you start, it's like, it's a horrible headspace to get yourself in. But, you know, like I had moments where one of the first major things I did at Newsround was we flew to South Korea to film like a series of short films. And I remember throughout the whole process there, I remember thinking, I shouldn't be here. Like, I've just started the job. I'm not ready for this. Blah, 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 blah. blah. And as a result, it actually ended up in me. Well, I believe I didn't do a great job. And I'm more than happy to say that. Like, I can look back at some of my early work and say... I've grown so yeah, much. Growth. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a hundred percent. But I look back and I, I sort of tell myself, I wish I hadn't been so hard on myself mm. and just did a good job. But yeah, the imposter syndrome can be real. It can be real. But then I like to tell myself and all the people around me in life, sometimes you need to gas yourself up. And sometimes you need to say, listen, I'm here because I'm leveled. <laughs> I'm here because I'm because I'm levels. Even though, like, I always say that, like, sort of tongue in cheek, but like, I sort of feel like I'm the type of person where I need to tell myself these kind of things. Otherwise, like, it's so easy to fall mm. into a pit of I'm not good enough or I shouldn't be here. Even if I'm not doing a good job at something, I'm like, listen, I'm sick still. So yeah. you've got to. Otherwise, how else do you survive in an industry like mm. this? You talked about there about not feeling like you should be there, but one of the great mm. things about recent years is that there are so many great black well loads of different presenters who oh, are non-white but loads yeah. of great black presenters you know julia danuga mm. can name quite a few but i'll we'll probably be here yeah. all day has that helped you in particular yeah you know what i i've said before that being young and black now i think it's just such a beautiful time especially for kids who might be looking and thinking i want to get into that career when i'm older there are so many people go watch zizi like you mentioned <laughs> you, you can, honestly go watch Zizi you've got Julia Danuga you've got all the YouTubers yeah. like, there's just so many and growing up we had people but we didn't have many I could probably Angelica name Bell. all of them we had like Angelica <laughs> Bell Lisa Reggie Yates Dave Benson Phillips him yeah, yeah. honestly you could name and them Ainsley Man Light <laughs> yeah Man Light like Ainsley Harry Hurt you had him too and this is no discredit to them at all but as a kid, especially growing up in a working class family, they didn't quite look working class because I guess TV didn't really show working class people mm. like that. So you assume that all of these people, especially as a kid, you assume all these people are minted and rich. Mm. <laughs> like you assume that they're so far removed from you. However, growing up now, when you've got people like Zizi, like Julie, like Philly, like Chunks and all these different people, I feel like now 
it's a sick time to be younger black and it does help even people like me it helps knowing that yo there are black people everywhere like we're literally everywhere and it's it's gone to the point where sometimes I don't even like calling it black culture but I'm going to call it black culture for now black culture it's such a massive part of just UK culture mm. now. Like a it's youth just culture. like yeah. it, yeah, yeah, a massive part. Like I remember back in the day, like in school, where <laughs> it, it reminds me of the Google ad, the one where Marcus uh, kind of white person say "Wagwan." Well, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it reminds because back in the day, I rarely heard people use words like "Wagwan," well, and it was just like you know me and my black friends. But now I hear everyone say it, and you know, <laughs> the culture's grown. But it does help somebody like me just to know that. There are loads of us. And at times you do sometimes feel like you're just one in a crowd of just like otherness. But all you've got to do is open the internet and realize, yo, we're everywhere. Yeah. Do you think that, I don't want to be skeptical here, but do you think, and this is mm. not related to black presenters, but do you think the rise of, I guess, influencers and all this proliferation has yeah. made kids kind of see influencers or that side as like the be all and end all maybe and they and they don't want to say be mm. if, it, if it's a, like a young black kid for example they might not be yeah. they might not want to be a black barrister or a black judge they yeah, might yeah, want to yeah. be yeah. just a presenter do you see what i mean yeah. i'm being cynical yeah, but i just no, want to play devil's advocate no no i hear that i hear that because i guess it's quite similar to when we were younger like when i was a child we obviously didn't have influencers, but we had celebrities. We had presenters. We had those people that were like, oh, I want to grow up and be that. But I think what the difference is now is that kids, especially who have grown up in the social media age, know that by being a social media personality, you can take home serious money. And clout. Like yeah. It's, yeah. And clout. Yeah. You, can, you can have a viable career out of just posting pictures on Instagram. So I think for some children and some young people that may potentially be the end goal. Like I do just want to be an influence. And some, you know what I always say, I don't like sort of talking down on that. Cause I remember there was an article two years ago ish, which said that young people are more likely to apply to or apply for Love Island than apply for Oxford I University. I saw that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And like loads of people are saying, oh, look at the generation of today and blah, blah, blah. But then I was like, hold on, let's dissect this. First of all, how hard is it to apply to get into Oxford University? Like, it's not just any Tom, Dick and Harry that can mm. just apply and get there. Second of all, Love Island as it is, there are many different... It's the generation's big brother as well. Like, big brother was probably it, the same exactly. back in the day. Yeah. yeah, Exactly. And then you can leave Love Island and make a serious career. There's no guarantee that if you leave Oxford University or any university, that you'll even have a mm. career. Whereas people are leaving Love Island making million pound contracts. And so... When I hear people sort of downplay the role of the influencer and the job of the influencer, I'm like, well, it can be a viable career, like a, a viable career option. So I think if if young people do want to do that, I just hope and wish that there are the toolkits out there to be like, okay, cool, you want to be an influencer, but how are you going to make that happen? What's your brand? What are you going to do? And also just to talk about the harms or the potential harms of social media. Mm, we'll come know? on to that in a bit. Like, do yeah. You want, <laughs> yeah. yeah, do you want to grow up in a world or in a industry where everything is focused around how you look and how you mm. present yourself because social media is a scam yeah 100 <laughs> percent. it's a scam i want to move on to the podcast now because i think it's such a great mm. new string to your bow and given it's aimed at uh, i would be fair to say like a predominantly black youth audience that's kind of how oh, you, where you aim it at you know what issues do yeah. you discuss how did you get involved with it and thirdly actually does it give you mm. a sense of pride in yourself knowing you're communicating mm. and informing directly to that community Oh, that's a good question. So how did it come about? So what happened was a lot of people assumed that I was 
approach to do this or I pitched this podcast forward. But no, this podcast, the idea for it, I think, was already being sort of put together. And they were now looking to staff it and to put the team together. So when I applied, again, imposter syndrome. But I remember sort of seeing the role as senior presenter and thinking, there ain't no way I'm getting a senior presenter role. <laughs> like, like I, I'm wasting my time. Doing, and I remember, you know, what? I remember doing the interview and I thought I messed up a big time to the point where after the interview, I had to go back to the news round office to then go live on news round to present the news. And afterwards, my mum called me to be like, are you all right? And I'm like, yeah, why? And she goes, you just look very sad. <laughs> like I watched you live and you look very Mom's sad. And I was knows. like, she always knows. I'm like, yeah, I just did a job interview and I don't think I've got it and blah, 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 blah. But lo and behold, here I am. <laughs> but yeah, I think that whole podcast, the type of things that we talk about are mainly things that affect young black Brits in the UK. Um, so our very first episode was the story of the disappearance and the eventual death of a uh, young black man, mm, Richard mm. Corrigue. And, you know, a story that a lot of people talk about on social media and just like a heartbreaking story. And we ended up speaking to one of his best friends mm. around that same time. And one thing that I love about our space is even when we are dealing with hard, serious topics, we do it in such a way where there are moments where you can smile and you can laugh and it gives you like, it's not all doom and gloom. Like my co-presenter Rashan will always say like, we're not here just to do black trauma. Trust like me. our yeah, podcast yeah, yeah. isn't me. just like, Oh, racism and discrimination and this and that. It's like, no, quite recently we had Sean Paul on the podcast. Another time we had bouncer from play dirty talking about like his life and his career. We did an episode on sickle cell and how it affects the black community. We did an episode on, the black comedy scene in the Which UK. Which is vibing right now. Vibing. Yeah. And I think that particular episode was jokes because it was looking particularly at black women in comedy. Miss Jocelyn. And big up yeah, Miss Jocelyn. Anyone, up Ms. anyone Jocelyn. who's old enough to remember that... Miss Jocelyn was, <laughs> yeah. was a madness back in school when she was on, uh, was that on was BBC3. BBC3. BBC3, that was it. <laughs> but, but we spoke to uh, two young female comedians, Hema Kay and Elaine Baby. And it's just moments like that where it's like, you know, this is a space where we want to celebrate blackness and talk about black issues, talk about all the serious stuff, but also talk about the stuff that we all enjoy and all the stuff that we want to celebrate. And I think for me, I love the fact that I can do it. Like it's a space where I can just be my authentic self. And that's not to say I can't be my authentic self on Newsround, but there's a level of myself that I can't be because I'm aiming this towards yeah. children. It's like, a nice a code 25. switch. It's a nice code switch. Yeah. yeah. It, yeah. No, it, exactly, yeah. Because it, it's like, I'm still me, but I'm not like, yeah, red hair, hair and blah, blah, blah. Because I'm, you know, I've, I've got to, I've got to <laughs> talk to the man then. Like, like, yeah, like, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, whereas a podcast, I can do all of that. Yeah. I can do all of that because I'm speaking in a way that I'd speak to my friends in that same way. For me, it feels like I'm speaking directly to black people and anyone who wants to listen to it as well. Because even though it is main, mainly at black people, Everyone can listen. Like I recently described it to somebody uh, using the analogy of supermarkets. So let me land this one because right now you're probably thinking supermarkets. But no, I, when you hear it, I felt like a barist when I <laughs> when I when I came up with it. So basically, I view the media landscape as a big old supermarket. So you go to Tesco, you go to Sainsbury's, and they do, in theory provide everything you need like you can buy a lot of things in supermarkets they cater to all different types of people but by their very nature of being a big supermarket 
they physically can't have everything because they don't have unlimited space. So in the same media landscape, in an ideal world and an ideal society, it would represent everyone. And to a certain degree, it does a good job of representing stories from everyone, but it can't do everything. I guess people would argue that it should do everything, but it can't do everything. And that's why we have specialist shops. Like you do have like an Afro-Caribbean shop. You have shop that deals with purely Polish food, purely Asian food. And I viewed the podcast in that same way. It's a specialist shop that, yes, black people can go and shop in, but it's not exclusive to black people. If you, as a white man, want to go into a black shop to buy some plantain, you can do that. Like, there's no rules to stop you from doing that. So I always tell people, like, I really hope it doesn't put non-black people off. Like, I think they should listen to it. I think it's great. I think they'd learn a lot and, you know, different perspectives and whatnot. It's just a little specialist zone for black people. But everyone's welcome to come through. Everyone's welcome to come yeah, through. I like that, man. Mental health is something that you cover on the podcast as well, DeGraft. And it's it's clearly mm. a topic that you and Russian care about deeply. Yeah. It's why I invited you on the podcast today. Mm. Can you talk about the episode you did with the man who lived with schizophrenia and the stigma yeah, no, abs- around the condition itself and within the black community? Mm. Well, that episode was an episode that like, I personally just... It's something I've always had an interest in. I can't remember how it came about. I think, actually, it came about because me and Rashan are two big EastEnders fans. <laughs> like, uh, it's embarrassing how, how much I watch EastEnders. Quite recently, I was watching on iPlayer, there's a, a section called Iconic EastEnders Episodes. And I was just watching through all of them. To the point where, back in the day, I was watching the old episodes where it's not even in a 16 by 9 format. Bruh. It's a little square. Like, yeah, Phil Mitchell had hair. Uh, like, like it was like, these are old episodes. But during that time, they were doing a storyline about a young character called Isaac who had schizophrenia. And we were, as we were watching it, I remember telling Rashan, like, yo, let's do this on the podcast. I've never seen a conversation about schizophrenia and black people. There is this massive stigma, especially in the black community or in parts of the black community that's attached to things like schizophrenia. Like I remember being a kid and having like an auntie, like everyone knew this one auntie who would like talk to herself and all this kind of stuff. I don't know the extent of what her mental health issues were, but as a kid, I remember the vibe around that was like, oh man, she's crazy. Mm. Like, and that was just like- Why birth? Not yeah, push her to, yeah, 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 yeah. It's just like, we don't really talk to her. And it's as I've grown up, I'm like, oh no, this is somebody who was obviously going through some sort of mental health issue. She needed some sort of mental health help. So talking to, we spoke to a young guy called Antonio, who was just great. He spoke so openly and candidly about him and his schizophrenia. And he went into great detail about, you know, the first time he heard voices and his time in the mental health facility. And people like him, I'm so grateful we do have young black people who can speak so openly about their mental health because even though there's a big stigma in mental health generally in society i believe that the stigma has previously been a lot worse in black communities yeah, Jama- jamaican and african like- communities i've found a lot with some of the guests yeah. i've spoken to jamaican well a caribbean more widely but some of the jamaican mm. guests i spoke to yeah in in sort of first generation it's very it's very stigmatized yeah. the ideas around masculinity as well which obviously that's going to be a whole other podcast but yeah things <laughs> like that is, is definitely something I've, I've kind of listened to a lot about yeah and I think that's why me and Rashan like doing stuff like that on the podcast. Because like, let's break that. Let's talk about this kind of stuff. Because even though we might not all be schizophrenic, we might all probably go through some sort of mental health issue or have some sort of day where our mental health isn't exactly perfect. 
So why aren't we talking about it? Mm. Like, why aren't we having these conversations? And no one needs me to tell them this, but there's absolutely nothing to be ashamed of. I always view it as in the same way that if I've got a cold or I've broken a bone or something, I will easily say, I've got a bit of a cold or I've broken my bone. Oh, when a couple of months ago, when I caught bloody COVID, I could easily say, I've got COVID. But why do we struggle to say, oh, I'm having a bit of a down day today or Mm. I'm not feeling my best today? Especially, like you said, with this whole sort of like idea of masculinity within the black community. But I do know for a fact that it is changing. And funnily enough, I feel like it's changing a lot with Gen Z. As much as I slate them for just (laughs) uh, how different they are to us, like they're changing a lot and are really breaking down what it means to be young and black. Mm. Before we reflect on your media journey, DeGraft, your biggest Mm. mental health blip, as you put it, took place Mm. just before the podcast started. And that's why we're going to talk about it here. So... You said the trigger for it was a sense of life moving too fast. You said to me off air, Mm. I felt like I shouldn't be where I am at this point in my life. So can you tell me about your mental health state here and when this train of thought started to become obsessive and quite troubling? Mm. So I remember it so clearly because I'd never really thought like this at any point in my life. But the minute I got the podcast role, I couldn't enjoy it. Because immediately I had this thought of, no, life is moving too fast. Like my immediate reaction was, was life is moving too fast. Like, I don't like this. Like for me, the best way I can describe it, it felt like I was on a train and I desperately wanted to get off the train and just pause and take life in. But I couldn't because the train was moving. And I'm somebody who I feel like I'm in control of a lot of things in my life. And for the first time in ages, I felt somewhat out of control. I was like, I don't like this. So I remember during that time, I became obsessed with this thinking of my life is going too fast. Like I'm getting older. I'm no longer young anymore. Like everything's speeding, like as dramatic as like everything's coming to an end soon. Everything just felt like it was almost as if in that moment, I just learned what it means to be alive. And this whole idea that like, oh, <laughs> yeah, that I'm, a, I'm an adult yeah. now. Like the past 25 years have gone. You're here now. And then I started thinking, wait, that means the next 25 are just going to fly by. Then I'm 50. I started having all these weird obsessive thoughts about all this kind of stuff. And I remember the days leading up to when it got real bad because I was working a lot because it was mid-pandemic and I was still coming into the studio to do news round stuff. And it was just constantly on my mind, just going round and round and round and round. And it was all I could think about. And I remember there was one day where I was about to go live on air. I think we were doing a rehearsal actually. So we're doing the rehearsal. And as I'm literally saying the lines and speaking and delivering, I'm thinking about it at the same time. It's just going round and round and round in my, round in my head. And it got to a point where I left the studio to go, I think to go get something from like makeup or something. And then my director, Jay, he comes out of the gallery and he looks at me and he goes, DeGraft, are you okay? And in that moment, what I should have said is, no, I'm actually really not okay right now. But instead I was like, oh yeah, 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 no, I'm fine. I think I've just like not had enough sleep. I sort of bantered it mm. off. I was like, oh, I think I'm just a bit tired. When in my heart of hearts, I was not okay. I was far from okay. I mean, this went on for weeks. Like there were moments where, I remember just walking down my neighborhood and everything felt overwhelming. I would look up at the sky and just see everything around me and everything just felt immense. And 
my headspace was just mashed. Like I wasn't, I wasn't in a good headspace at all. So one day I'm at work and I'm chatting to a friend and one of our producers. And as we're talking, I'm going through that thought process again. But then in that moment, I thought, no, I need to get help. I need to talk to somebody now. So luckily we, which I know a lot of employees have, but we had a service for our employer where you could get help. I accessed um, it myself. Like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> honestly. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember being like, okay, I just left the room and went to go make the call. I made the call and I was like, hi. Uh, and I, it was so weird because I didn't even have the language. I didn't know what to say. So I just she was like, oh, hi, how can I help? Obviously in probably better language than that. And I was like, um, um, I, I think I need to talk to someone. And she goes, okay, what's wrong? And then I just start babbling. I'm just talk i'm saying everything that's wrong i'm just going i'm I'm spilling and this was in our studio complex so there are people walking around but i remember sort of being like it's almost as if i didn't care at that moment i was just spilling so she was like all right thank you for all of that like we'll get back in touch and we'll sort you out some counseling sessions and the counseling helped man like it helped if i sit here and say like it completely fixed everything I wouldn't be telling the truth because it was six sessions, but it massively helped and it gave me the tools. Because how I viewed counselling for me was it wasn't a fix that my counsellor could do by herself. As she could help a lot, but then she gave me the tools that I had to implement in my own life. Like it wasn't just, I chatted on Zoom and then the minute the Zoom ended, oh, I feel absolutely fantastic. Everything's sorted. It's like, no, here are the tools to make sure that when you are having these unhealthy thinking patterns, this is what you do. This is how you get over them. And yeah, they helped massively. I mean, I can't lie. I'm not a hundred percent. And I don't think I will ever be how I was before this happened. But I think I've made my peace of that. And the reason why I've made my peace of that is because I think that's just come with the territory of getting older for Mm. me. And I feel like the reason why I can't go back to that mindset beforehand is because I'm not there in life anymore. I'm in a new part of life. All that to say, though, that it's not as obsessive as it was. Like, I live a pretty easygoing life. Like, I barely get into those thought processes. And when I do, I know how to deal with it. And I'm starting to become a lot more honest about how I'm feeling. And when people are saying, are you okay? I'm trying to get better at being like, no, I'm not all right, you know, and just doing all of those things. But yeah, it's, it's funny. It's because it's one of those things where I've always wanted to do counselling and I wish I had done counselling before I needed to do counselling because yeah. I feel like I left it to a point where I was like, oh, rah, Crisis. it's not that I want to yeah, do yeah, this. Yeah, yeah I, need, I need to do this now. Mm. But yeah, I feel like I've just rambled a whole... No, 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 it's good, man. Whole, it's all good. <laughs> just my brain frying <laughs> off in, in different, different directions. You said you will never be the same person but are you a better mm. person now? Hmm. You know what? I'm going to say yes and no. I'm going to say yes. Because in fact, no, let me start with a no. I'm going to say I'm not a better person now because, hmm. Actually, you know, you know, when you answer a question, you're like, I don't believe the words I'm, I'm about to say. I was about to say something like, no, you don't believe those words. You know what? I think I am a better person. I think I am a better person. And I think it's because I'm in that sort of space in my life where when things go wrong, I know better how to deal with them. And I also know how to stop certain things from going wrong. A lot of the times when I was feeling sad, 
I was doing things that I didn't realise were making me feel sad. One thing that my counsellor told me was, you know, when I was in this sort of blip in my life, I was telling her that I was waking up feeling sad. I was waking up and I was already sad. I was already down. And she said, okay, well, how about every night before you go to bed, you write three things that made you happy that day and you just spend the time sort of like meditating and thinking about those things and really taking it in it's something that I've stopped doing because I got lazy but but like that in itself helped a lot like I realized I was waking up not feeling sad because instead of going to bed overthinking things and then waking up with those things still in my mind I'd wake up just feeling a bit fresher and I'd go out for a walk and do all these kind of things so I think I'm a better person because I have the tools to be better when I am in those situations I can't believe I was going to say I was a worse I'm person. I'm glad you came. I'm like, no, glad you I'm, came to that conclusion yeah. nicely, bro. I'm leaving that all in. So, <laughs> yeah, do it. <laughs> I want to reflect on your journey now in media and presenting the graph. So, firstly, mm. what has this journey taught you about yourself? Do you think? And secondly, mm. there might be a few kids listening to this pod and might be inspired mm. by, or hopefully, might be inspired by you to start their own <laughs> presenting dream. So, what message or advice would you give them from your experience? Well. I think one thing that I've learned definitely about myself during this journey is one thing I've learned is I think I'm a lot stronger than I thought I was. And I think previously, especially when I was younger, even though I've always been this sort of loud and chatty person, I always sort of viewed myself as sometimes being quite timid and quite sort of like passive in my way of like, oh, anything can fly like it's fine mm. but then as I've grown older and I've been in this industry for a while I've realized no I'm a lot stronger I always tell people you can't take me for an idiot <laughs> like 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 I sometimes I I sort of tell myself the things that I've seen and the things that I've done no one can take me for an idiot I can't let that run especially like I sort of say looking how just my parents and how how I was raised by my mom and life lessons I was taught by my family I've been through too much for anyone to take me for an idiot. So that's one thing that I've learned about myself. But I've also learned that kindness is such a big part of who I am. Let me be real. In the media industry, as is the same in a lot of industries, there are some unkind people. Mm-hmm. Like there are some people who just aren't mm-hmm. nice. And, <laughs> and like, like we, all know, we all know the types of people. We all know who they are. And I, I tweeted about this quite recently. I, I said that unfortunately, just because of how life is, some of those unkind people are going to do fantastically well in their career. It's like, I'm sorry, guys. That's just the harsh reality of life. Some of those people are going to have beautiful careers. Mm -hmm. However, one thing that I care about a lot that I've learned in this career is I don't want anyone to have a reason to say my name with nastiness. I don't want anyone to ever be like, oh yeah, he's doing well, but that DeGraph, he's he's a prick. Mm. Like I want to be seen as a good person. And I want to be seen as somebody who's always treated somebody in a good way. And I've always said, and I truly believe this, if being a good person means I won't get to the peak of where I want to get in my career, I'm content with that. I, I that. never want to become yeah. a, uh, yeah. I don't want to become somebody who has to, throw people under the bus. That was something that my mom taught me actually from early. She goes, in your life, never, ever, ever step on someone else just to get ahead. Your time will come. 
everyone's time will come, but never step on somebody just to get ahead. And it's something that I've taken with me everywhere. I'm like, I've got no reason to throw somebody under the bus or to gossip about somebody or, you know, I'm the type of person, if I've got an issue with you, I'm more likely to just come to say like, look, this is a problem that I have. Let's talk it out. So yeah, that's one thing I've definitely learned about myself in this career is that I, kindness is such a big thing and it's a big thing for me. And for any, like, if you are, sort of young and you're listening to this and you want to get into presenting journalism or whatnot, that was a bit of advice I'd give you. Genuinely, be kind. Because especially you see journalism in the movies and it's presented as some sort of like dog-eat-dog world and you've got to be a fighter and you've got to, you know... You've got to have ops. Not even... <laughs> yeah, you've got to have ops everywhere. When you're in Costa, you don't even say thank you for the coffee because you're like, no, nah, I'm too I'm a, busy. I'm a i got to go. Yeah, I'm too busy. I'm, I'm running. Like, no, just be nice because niceness will get you far. And listen, the amount of times... For the people listening, right? Some of your faves out there, all right? Some of your faves, the stories I've heard about some of your faves, all right? (laughs) And they're from more than one person. They're from multiple sources, okay? I don't want that to be me. I don't want to be in a position where multiple people are saying, to go after this person. He's like this on TV, but he's not like that off camera. Exactly. Exactly. I want people to both on camera, off camera to be like, oh no, he's a decent guy. I may be a bit too loud sometimes. I may be too loud for your liking, but, and this isn't me saying I'm a perfect angel. As a human being, I do have flaws. But one thing that I definitely try to do is I try to be good and I try to be kind Mm. and I try to treat people with respect there are obviously going to be bad days where you catch me on a day where I'm vexed for some reason like I'm just (laughs) I'm just vexed and I'm not in the mood because I tell people to shut up all the time just as bad I'm like shut up man but one day I might say shut up with a bit too much vim I'll be like oh shut up forgive me okay like (laughs) like forgive me maybe I listened maybe I listened to the wrong song that morning okay maybe (laughs) maybe I was listening to next hype and you know it (laughs) It got into the bones. And I Some of the kids won't know about like, that song, bro, if they're listening. Um, I know They it. won't even know about power. L- Lond- London like, grew up on... London, <laughs> back yeah. in the grew up on next time, but... <laughs> oh, man. You know, I've, I've got to mention this story just because I've brought up next hype. All right. So, fun fact about next hype. When I finished university, I was expecting a first and I thought I'd get a first. And my whole identity was surrounded on like, oh, I want to get a first. I didn't get a first. I got a letter in the post saying, hey, you got a 2-1. I was vexed. So what I did, I remember, I tied up my laces angrily, like with force and aggression. I put my headphones in and I ran to Next Hype around my neighborhood. Just angry. I was just sprinting. <laughs> what kind of shoes have you got? Like I was, I was just angry. <laughs> and now that I look back, I'm like, it's all right to go. You've done all right for yourself. You didn't need Next Hype. <laughs> we've talked all about the media the presenting world and your journey to graft i want to go a bit deeper Mm. now and talk about your own mental health journey so i ask all my special guests this question first walk me through Mm. early life in milton Keynes, teenage years family and looking back were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint who's the graft we meet here well growing up so for those who don't know, I grew up in Milton Keynes, uh, but I was actually born in London, but I have zero recollection of growing up in London. Like, I think we moved to Milton Keynes when I was like two. Okay. But I like to say like I'm from Milton Keynes because that's all <laughs> I know. But yeah, growing up, I always like to say I was a happy kid. Like I loved life. 
I was just a happy, happy kid. But now looking back, there was there were two main things that I look back. I'm like, hmm, those were probably early signs of little mental health difficulties. My teachers would always say I was a massive warrior. And I remember <laughs> this dumb, dumb example, but I remember being in school and it was report, we're getting our report sent home. And I saw one of my teachers saying, the graph is great, blah, 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 but he's a massive warrior. Now me being a dumb kid, I read that as a warrior, like a fighter. <laughs> so I come home, I'm like, oh, I said I'm a warrior. And then my mom's reading this. I was like, what are you worrying about? Am I worrying about? And I read it again. I was like, oh, rah, I'm a warrior. But then I think I, I knew that as a kid, I worried a lot about things. I was just worrying. And I think worrying about loads of different things, worrying that, worrying that, oh, all my friends okay. Worrying that, you know, am I doing well in school? Mm. Just worrying about everything. That's the sort of first big sign of a sort of mental health mindset was it anxiety or was it just stress or you know what it might have been anxiety it might have been anxiety like i don't and the reason why i say it might have been anxiety is because i know there are some people who and forgive my language if it's not correct but there was there were going to be some people who had like I don't want to say proper anxiety. But well, there's, know, there had... is generalized anxiety disorder, which is the diagnosed yeah. condition. I have diagnosed yeah. anxiety just general. And then you have, I yeah, think yeah, a lot yeah. of kids just have anxiety sort of run yeah. of the mill. But they don't have to yeah. know what it is. I used to, people used to say to me, I flapped a lot. I was worrying. Mm. I was stressing. But actually, it took me till 21. People like, oh, actually, that was anxiety, not just worrying. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly that. And I think I probably just had like the general anxieties that you do have as a kid, like growing up. But then another thing that I remember as a kid is like, there was one night where, and I think this happens, I'd see it quite often in kids around us, but I remember one night waking up in the middle of the night and sort of asking my mum, like, mummy, like what happens like when we die? I think as a kid, I was just very inquisitive but I worried about everything. Mm. I worried about everything. And I think, you know, even that conversation, I remember just like before I asked that question, I must have just been been feeling sad as a kid. And I just, and I was worrying about, I was worrying about potentially one day being an adult and being an old person and eventually dying. And as a kid, I just didn't understand it. So I think as a kid, worry was my big thing. But on the day to day, I was a happy kid. I had friends that I loved, family that I loved. In like all my pictures, I'm grinning. <laughs> Teachers were always saying that I was a happy kid. In like school, I was always getting involved in like performances. I was one of the very few lucky children who got to play Joseph in the Nativity play, you know, a role that I take dearly. So yeah, as I'm growing up, I'm taking this attitude with me. I'm becoming a happy kid a happy teenager but that worry is still there like every now and then I did just like worry about certain things but if I'm going to be completely honest it wasn't until I had that mental health blip during the pandemic that I recognized anything as being a mental health issue mm. if you had asked me as, as a teenager I would have probably said yo I'm fine I worry about the same things we all worry about but I'm good but sometimes you look back and you have to think hmm was I good if I spoke to somebody would they have identified something that that I potentially didn't see. Mm. Let's fast forward to university now, because like you said, you know, secondary school was great. Sixth form was positive too. Mm. You did say, however, when you when we spoke off air, that you had to make some difficult choices with your friendships at university. So mm. can you explain what you meant by that? And did it give you a reality of perhaps the hard facts of life when it comes to adult relationships mm. and friendships? 
I making friends as an adult is hard. Like it is hard because you really begin to realize you select people. You start to think, okay, who do I want in my life? Who is good for me? And as you grow up, especially during that university phase, you realize actually some people aren't good for me at all. Like you've got to go because in school, you're sort of like, ah, whatever. I've got my crew. I'm rolling with my crew. Yeah, some of these characters are flawed, but they're my friends. But as you get older, you're like, I'm too old for this. Mm. I can't do this. I remember actually making friends at university, I struggled with, like, I can't lie. In first year, I struggled to make friends because I'm the type of person where I don't go out of my way to talk to people. I'm very like, if I don't know you, I'm not standoffish, but I'm very close. I just talk to the people that I know. Maybe it's a trust issue things, who know? Who knows even? But yeah, definitely had to make difficult decisions in sort of streamlining your friendship group. You know what, especially post-uni, like a lot of the friends, especially that you make at university, sometimes you leave uni and you realise, hmm, am I your friend? Do I want to be your mm, friend? Like, that's the sort of, that's I, the main one. Am yeah. I? Yeah. Does this friendship benefit me? Does this friendship benefit you? Like, what's going on here? And then there are some people that unfortunately had to go and they've gone. And people do say friendship breakups are hard. <sighs> they are hard. But now I'm at a space in life where if you got to go, you got to go. I can't spend life just sort of... Like, it's hard to maintain friendships as well, especially exactly, as an adult. Because yeah. in school... You didn't have to really maintain it because you saw them every day. Whereas as an adult, you have to make plans and you have to see them. And some people you realize actually, no, I'm not seeing you anymore. So they had to go. So to any friends that I lost along the way, sorry, but you had to go. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, you didn't make the cut. (laughs) From that very cheery note to uh, quite difficult period Mm. for you the graft is a period of grief that you went through during Mm. 2019 and I've spoken to a lot of guests about grief and naturally some guests will have experienced grief through COVID-19 you might be listening to this Mm. pod so you lost your uncle and I'm right in saying that this was the first time somebody big or somebody very important Mm. to you or close to you had died yeah so can you tell me first about the man your uncle was and then your relationship Mm. with him. So my uncle was probably one of the happiest people I've ever met in my life. Like he was, he was just, I never saw him unhappy, like ever. He was always laughing and he was always making other people laugh. And, you know, he was very close to my mum. So he was my uncle, but for technicality's sake, he was my mum's cousin. But growing up, he was my uncle, uncle figure yeah, in my life. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. And so I think they had grown up together, like, in Ghana. So, you know, she was super close to him. But he was just, like, I loved seeing him at family events because he was just, he was just funny. You sort of looked at him and you go, like, oh, I kind of want to be like him when I'm older, you know. You could tell he was somebody that loved life and who loved being alive. But, yeah, that was the first moment in my life where I experienced grief like people had died in my family but they weren't there were never people that I knew all that well but this is the first time that I somebody that I'd seen throughout all my life this is the first time somebody had died and I remember when I found out not quite believing it was real and even now as I'm talking about it it doesn't feel real like I'm talking about like my uncle was this my uncle was that but it almost feels as if no, he's still here. I just haven't seen him in a while. But sometimes I do sit and think like, 
Oh no, he he died. And that whole time period of my life was a weird, weird moment. Because I remember I've got, I've one of the most bizarre thing that I did and that I shouldn't have done, but I did it anyways, is I remember the day of his funeral, I decided, well, I didn't decide, but I ended up presenting the, um, the eulogy news round yeah. morning bulletin oh sorry oh, no. on news yeah. round sorry no <laughs> yeah no no that's all right so i did the news round program in the morning and then straight after got a train to milton Keynes to attend the funeral and that was such a weird headspace to be in because mm. it's like going from the morning of like good morning guys welcome to the news round on today's program we've got blah 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 blah, blah. then in the back of my mind i'm like i've got to go to a funeral later today and i remember getting on the train I don't even think I listened to music on the train I think I just sort of sat there in silence got on the train got home got picked up at the station changed went to the funeral and cried my heart out like like I knew it would make me cry like I knew it would make me cry but I sobbed like I sobbed it was like the saddest I've ever been and all I remember is just seeing so much pain. Like, everyone looked, people crying. Mm. And and a part of me felt selfish for crying because a part of me was like, as much as I like the man, he has kids. He's got brothers and sisters. He's got people who are closer to him. I'm not an immediate family relative. So a part of me was like, I feel selfish for crying because a part of me was like, you're making this about you. And it was just, my head was just yeah. going all over the place. But then after that, as I always do in life, is I feel like I parked it in my brain. I was like, cool, that's done. Don't think about it. Keep on moving. So I don't think I properly processed it until quite a while later. Because I remember maybe like a couple months after that, I was on my way to Sainsbury's and a hearse drove past me. And I was just filled with sadness because everything came flooding back. It felt like in that moment, I just started to process it properly. And even every now and then, every now and then I do think about him and it terrifies me. And the reason why it terrifies me is because I don't know how I will cope when somebody closer to me passes. And it's a thought that I have quite often. Like I genuinely don't know how I will cope. And sometimes it's scary, but sometimes I think, sometimes I think I won't cope. Like sometimes I get into these, into this mindset where I'm like, if like I lost a close family member or a close friend, like how will I continue? And I think you hear people who have experienced grief and, you know, a lot of people say is you don't really get over grief. You sort of learn to grow with it. It changes you. It, yeah, time yeah, doesn't it heal, changes. It, it changes. Yeah. Exactly. But then sometimes I, re I read that and I'm like, yeah, but I don't know if I can, <laughs> I don't know if I can do that. But then, there's no point in me trying to preempt it and trying to figure out how I'll feel. Cause I ain't got a clue how I'll feel. Like when it happens, it happens. But yeah, it was the first time I'd experienced proper grief. And I remember sort of thinking like, oh, I want this to be my last time, but just Life doesn't won't. work like that, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, I, I don't get to make the rules. Yeah. So it was a crazy time mm. in my life, a crazy time. You said your uncle was, you know, such a jolly and happy man, mm. always making people laugh. So if he was listening to this pod, and I'm, mm. I'm sure he is somewhere at the graph, what do you mm. think you would say to him? And do you think, I don't know, subconsciously or consciously, you're carrying on that legacy of jolliness in yourself? Mm. 
Well, you know what? One thing that I would definitely say to him is, because I don't know if anyone, I'm pretty sure somebody must have told him, but I would tell him like, you made so many people happy. You made so many people happy. Like so many people just wanted to be around you. And I feel like in life, we don't tell people this enough that we don't tell our friends that I like being around you or I love your company or you make me happy. Or when I speak to you, I feel like replenished. We don't tell people in our lives these kind of things. So that's one thing I'd want to tell him. And you know what? I think the same joy that he had, I think is something that I see a lot in a lot of my family members. A lot of people just within the black community, there's a Dave lyric that I'm now trying to remember that sums up, that sums up exactly what I'm trying to articulate. I think it is in the song Black, and I think the lyrics go, loud in our laughter, quiet in our suffering. And that sums up for me, my family in particular, but when I think about my uncle and when I think about that joy and the joy that I see in my family, it's we are loud in our laughter, but quiet in our suffering. When I look at my family, I don't think of any bad moments so I don't think of any things that may be going wrong which I don't know if that's always healthy mm. but <laughs> we are loud in our laughter and that's one thing that I want to carry with me for the whole of life I just want to be able I always say I want to laugh with everything that's in me I want to laugh in life and I just hope I can do that laugh with your soul not just laugh with your belly <laughs> yeah I want to laugh literally one of those laughs where your whole entire being is just ah those laughs will ah i'm I'm due one of them i'm due one of them i've had a few of them on this pod mate i've had a few on this (laughs) i want to talk about self-acceptance now because Mm. this is another thing you wanted to talk about to graft and snidey comments about you know my personality in particular used to affect me a lot when i was growing up and when i was Mm. bullied and it took me a long time to overcome that but i now say and a previous guest told me this was, quite, this was quite a good bar. I now say that my self-acceptance is my suit of armor. So yeah. when someone at work said to you, DeGraff, that you're always mm. so happy. People used to always say this to me. You used to piss me off mm. so much. How did yeah. that affect you? Were you annoyed or did you brush mm. it off and keep your suit of armor nice and clean and pristine? You know what? I would brush it off, but I wish I didn't. And the reason why I say I wish I didn't is because People would tell me, oh, you're so happy. You're always happy. You're always laughing. And especially when I was going through that mental health blip, I wish I said, okay, cool. I may always be laughing, but right now <laughs> I'm not good. But instead I'd be like, oh yeah, you know, cause life's easy. I'm just trying to have a good time. Like that's, that would always be like my go-to line. And I saw a tweet that sort of summed it up perfectly. Like no one ever really checks up on the strong friends. The strong friends are always there to be there for other people in the friendship group and the shoulders to lean on, shoulders to cry on, but no one ever checks up on the strong friends. And I feel like that's me. I am the strong friend in a lot of my friendship groups and everyone always sees me as the laughing, the loud, the happy person. But it's like, nah, sometimes I'd be sad. Like I remember once on this very desk that I'm recording this on, I was listening to some music. I've got a playlist called In My Feelings, which is just sad songs. <laughs> Um, I believe everyone should have a sad song playlist and I'm just listening to the music and I started crying because I realized yo I'm not all right man like I'm not okay like and I was sobbing I was sobbing but 
the way I stopped sobbing, because <laughs> I had things to do that day as well. I remember I had to look at myself in the mirror and be like, look at yourself right now. Listen, you need to pull yourself together, okay? You've been crying for the past half an hour. You need to stop. <laughs> but it is annoying when people say like, oh, you're so happy, you're so happy, you're so happy, you're so happy. It almost makes you feel a bit invisible because it's like, is that all you see of me? Yeah. Because there's a lot, there's a lot more to me. So if you're not seeing that, it's like, why aren't you seeing that? Is it because you generally can't see that? Or do you just not care enough to sort of dig deeper? So you see you simplistically. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's like, we're multifaceted people. Like, I can't just always be the happy person. Sometimes I am the sad person. Sometimes I'm the angry person. Sometimes I ain't got an emotion. Sometimes I'm just living. <laughs> Sometimes I'm just trying to mm. get through it. But part of that is my problem because, or my fault even, because I remember talking to my counsellor and she was saying that I brush off a lot of things using comedy. And I know I do that. And I did it, I guess, especially growing up, I did it to sort of, if there was a conversation that was make, making me feel uncomfortable, I'd like banter it off and then move on to something else. And then I'm trying to get into a new stage in life where I don't always have to do that, where I'm like, no, I'm not okay. Or no, I'm just a bit honest about my emotions. I think that's what I need to be, just a bit more honest. Own your shit. Yeah, yeah I've got to. I've got to because there's a saying that <laughs> a lot of West Africans say, but this whole saying of, I can't come and die. Like, and it's like, I can't, <laughs> like, and like, I say, I say it all the time. Like, and for anyone listening who doesn't understand, because I've said it amongst people who aren't black and they've not understood it. They've seen it as it being a lot darker than it, uh, than it is. But I can't come and die. It's basically like, I can't bring all of these pressures and pressures and struggles and like, I can't pile them all upon myself. Like, I can't burden myself, basically. I, I need to free up myself. I need to be free in life. Like, I can't come and die. I can't come and stress. Like, life is too short. I'm trying to have a good time, mm. so. On World Mental Health Day, you decided mm. to go public about your mental health for the mm. first time. So, can you talk me through that process as, you know, being, and done it myself. It's one of the scariest yeah. steps you can do, but speaking oh, from experience. Yes the most positive reaction you ever get is from that mm. first post. Everything else, people sort of stop caring about in the end because they go, oh, he talks <laughs> yeah. about it a lot. Don't worry, I won't, re- I won't yeah. engage on this one. <laughs> oh, no, I don't. So, yeah, I tweeted on World Mental Health Day about my mental health struggles. And I remember writing out the tweet. I think I didn't even write the tweet in Twitter. I wrote it in my notes app first because I was like, I don't even want to write on Twitter and accidentally press tweet. I'm not even sure if I want anyone to read this. So I'm going to tw- I'm gonna write it in my notes. So I wrote it in my notes. And I'm like, mm, okay, it passed the first test. Let's bring it over to the Twitter app. I brought it to the Twitter app and my thing was hovering over tweet. And I was like, I can't send this. Like, I can't. And it was this fear. I don't know what the fear was. You can't unsend it. That's the fear. You can't unsend exactly. it. I didn't want people asking me, oh, well, you're right. Or I didn't want people treating me differently. I didn't want to be treated as now I'm some frail person who needs help in every aspect of my life. There was some, I had this, and a lot of this thinking was irrational, but I had, a, a, I was thinking that I don't want to be viewed as weak. I guess that's what I was thinking. I don't want to be viewed as weak. I don't want to be viewed as like, I'm no longer the strong friend. I had all these thoughts circling in my head. And then I thought, you know what? I'm going to do it. And whatever happens, happens. Like, whatever happens, happens. Because what's the worst that could happen? So I remember I pressed send and dashed my phone. Like, <laughs> dashed it. Like, I'm like, I'm not looking at my phone. I'm like, I'm not looking, I'm not looking, I'm not looking. And then the reaction 
was worth it. And it was just the conversation that came off the back of that were amazing. Like even speaking to my boss, my boss saying, look, I saw your tweet. And like, if you ever do need help or support, please do let us know. Essentially, you can't suffer in silence. Like if work is ever becoming like too much, let us know. Once I sent it, I felt free because I'm like, oh, this has been burdening me for months. Like this was something that just me and my counsellor knew. And eventually me, my counsellor and like two of my friends. But once I pressed send, I was like, yeah, I'm sad right now and what? And I'm happy I did it. I, I nearly, I can't lie, I nearly deleted it. Like a day afterwards, I remember even thinking, yeah, but I could delete this still. Do I want this attached to my name forever? And I said, yes, I do, because it's part of who I am. It's part of who I am in this moment in time and I've got to own it. Before we reflect on your mental health journey, mate, I want to briefly talk about COVID-19 because at time mm. of recording, you had it a couple months ago. And mm. you've only just recovered from it. So what impact mm. did it have in your physical? And what impact yeah. did it have in your mental health? Well, when I had COVID, I was sad. I was sad because the way it crept up on me was, I remember just feeling, I had a headache and I felt a bit off. I'm like, something doesn't feel right. And my lateral flow tests were coming back negative. So I was like, oh, I'm good. So I went into work, came back home. Went into work the next day. I'm like, mm, my head is throbbing and something doesn't, this doesn't feel normal. Like something feels off. Lateral flow test is still coming up as negative. So I'm like, mm, okay, is what it is. But then as I'm sat down in my house, I'm like, and this is when the Delta variant was just doing its thing. But I was reading the symptoms and I'm like, this sounds very similar to how I'm feeling right now. So I was like, let me go get a PCR test. I drove to do the PCR test. I came home and I'm like, I don't feel good at all. Like, I'm going to rest. And I think I remember telling my housemates that, look, I've gone for a PCR test. I doubt I've got COVID. I doubt it. But I'm just going to stay in my room today just in case. I woke up the next day. I remember picking up my phone to a text from NHS and it said, yeah, you're positive. And I remember thinking, I've got COVID? What? Because I didn't feel that rough until that day had passed. And I was coughing all over the place. I felt weak. I felt frail. One of the saddest parts was not being able to see anyone and just being trapped in my room. Like, uh, I just, I, I hated it. Like, I hated it. But one of the saddest moments was when I lost my taste and my smell. Because I realised food is such a big part of my life and what I enjoy doing. And when I couldn't do that, I remember sort of thinking, like, generally, what is the point of anything right now if I can't enjoy food at all? And even though I have recovered from COVID, that is a symptom that I'm still living with. I still, to this day, some things taste rotten and some things smell rotten. And it is one of the most frustrating things to live with. And it's demoralizing. Foods that I used to love, I can no longer eat because they taste disgusting. And it sounds silly, but it makes me upset. It makes me so sad and it's so frustrating. And this is why this is what annoys me about, you know, there are some people out there who are like, oh, but if young people get COVID, we'll be fine. We won't die. And it's like, yeah, but I don't want to live like this. I don't want to live not being able to taste anything or not being able to smell anything. Just because I'm not dead doesn't mean, doesn't mean that this is all right. And it's like, people, people don't realise that some of the lasting effects it's having on some people. And... Luckily, it's not everything that tastes disgusting, but I'm still living with the effects and I can only hope and pray that 
in the next couple of months, it disappears. Because genuinely, I don't know how I can go on not being able to enjoy certain foods. For anyone who knows anything about Ghanaian food, jollof rice, I'm a big jollof rice eater, but I'm not tasting a single thing when I'm eating it. And uh, it's just, it's frustrating, but I try not to let it get to me because it's one of, I don't like to overthink things that I can't change. And with this, there is absolutely nothing I can do. So I've just got to let it do its thing. Mm. I want to reflect on your journey now, the graft. So mm. A, what has it taught you about yourself? And B, mm-hmm. if you could go back and talk to that 21-year-old DeGraff struggling to balance all of his friends at university or <laughs> the 23-year-old struggling with grief or the 24-year-old who is overthinking about his own existence and career, mm. what would you say to him knowing what you do now? You know what? I would say probably the same thing to all the different versions of me. And I would say that you're not as all-knowing as you think you are and that is fine and why I would say that is because I feel like for ages I've gone through life thinking I know everything or I know myself like this is me no one knows me better than me cool but then it wasn't until I entered that blip where I realized oh maybe I don't know myself because this is a version of me that I don't know how to navigate I don't know what to do with this version of me I don't know I don't know how to deal with this when I was dealing with grief for the first time I didn't know how to deal with this. When I was dealing with friendship issues, I didn't know how to deal with it. So I wish I I could go back and say, you don't know everything and that's okay. But stop pretending like you know everything. Allow yourself to slightly lose control. I was so persistent on being in control of everything and knowing everything and, you know, being the driver of my own life and blah, blah, blah. But sometimes just let go a little and see what happens. When I say this, I have this imagery of sort of me in the sky, I don't know, like using some sort of device to fly around and navigate all over the place. And when I say let go, sometimes it's like, just be at the mercy of life for a bit. Let go and let the winds carry you. You don't always have to be in control of everything because one day you're going to meet something that pushes everything out of control and you're going to feel merciless. But I feel like I just need to get used to this idea of I don't control life and I can control aspects of my life, but there are certain things I cannot control and I need to be all right with that. I need to be all right with that. We have come to our final topic of conversation, the graft, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests on the Just Checking In podcast, Mm. which is a general natter and chat about our mental health. So first of all, how would you say your mental health is in the moment, mate? At the moment, I would say it is, oh, I'd say it's, it's all right, actually. Like, if I'm being honest, it's, it's all right. Recently, especially in the last couple of weeks, I've done loads of things that have made me really, really happy. Like, really, really happy. And it's nearly Christmas. It's nearly my birthday. Um, so, like, right now, I'm just, I'm actually in this sort of, like, good vibe space where I'm like, yeah, things are all right. They're not perfect but are things ever perfect definitely not definitely not mate (laughs) you've already said what age you were when you became self-aware of your mental health so Mm. now why don't you tell me about the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health so who was it with what impact did Mm. it have and 
how do you look back on it? Did it feel like a big burden or big moment had been lifted off your shoulders? Or did it feel like something quite insignificant, easy and normal to do? You know what? I, at first, I thought the first conversation I had about my mental health was with my counsellor, but I realised it wasn't. I think maybe a year prior to that, it was a conversation that I had with my friend Livy. Uh, shout out Livy. Shout out Livy on the podcast. Yeah, shout, yeah shout, shout out to Livy. But she was saying, that she was talking about her anxiety. And as she was talking, I remember just being like, oh, Livy, like, I get upset about certain things, you know? Like, sometimes I feel like this and sometimes I feel like that. And as we were talking, it sort of felt like, I sort of felt like a kid. I was like having this conversation, sort of testing the waters to see what, what is this? Like, what is this? How was it meant to feel? And all this kind of stuff. And I feel like when I had that conversation, I felt quite free afterwards. I was like, ah, so what? I can talk to people about this and like nothing will change whatsoever. I can have this conversation and my life will literally be exactly the same. So yeah, I think that was the first, I want to say that was the first one. If I had the conversation with one of my friends before that point, I'm sorry, I don't remember it. So (laughs) if you're listening, that's your own. (laughs) (laughs) What things do you find in life, mate, that trigger your mental health? So it could be things people Mm. might say to you, like we've already said about sort of always feeling so happy and all that sort of stuff. Or it could be a sound, it could be a social environment, it could be a sensation. Mm. Or have you not figured all of them out yet? I know one of them and one of them is stillness and silence because I feel like in stillness and silence it's almost as if because my brain is talking all the time it's almost as if in stillness and silence it's like oh so you're giving me an arena to talk now (laughs) all right cool let's think about x y and it's like what (laughs) like I was trying to have a good time and I've realized another thing that triggers it is being up too late if I'm up too late I try to go to bed at half 10 like every day but if sometimes I find myself up at like two o'clock in the morning because I've just been watching stuff and I'm just up. And once I'm up at that time, my brain is just, it's everywhere it shouldn't be. Yeah, it's mash up. Like, yeah. It's, yeah, yeah, it is mash up. So yeah, those are my main triggers. Silence, stillness and being up too late. Okay. What tools and methods on the other hand do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have you found that have worked for you and are really good? And maybe which ones as well that you've tried but haven't worked out? One of the things that definitely works for me is music. Like, mm. there are certain songs now we're getting that I can it. listen to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there, are certain, there are certain songs that no matter what mood I'm in, they will make me happy. One of those songs is Sweet Female Attitude Flowers. Uh, Sunship, Sunship Edit. edit. Yeah. Yes. Some of these, oh, do you that know what's song... mad? Some of the kids won't know what that song is now. <laughs> they won't know it. They won't know oh. it. But that song, no matter what is going on in my life, if I put that song on, oh, I feel like euphoric. Like, I, oh, I just, I love it so much. Like, I love it so much. But another thing that sort of a tool that helps is sometimes just being outside and, you know, going for a walk. I mean, a lot of the tools that my counsellor gave me, I haven't implemented. And you know what? This is actually something quite interesting. So I actually, one of the last things I spoke to my counsellor about was this idea of self-sabotage. And I was telling her that I haven't implemented a lot of the tools she gave me because it was almost as if I knew they would make me better, but I didn't want to get better. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever, but it was almost as if, I didn't want to get better because even as I'm saying that out loud, I realize this logic is flawed, but this is how I felt in the moment. I didn't want to get better because it meant that my counseling 
would be over. And I tapped into this mindset of life is going by too quickly. Like everything felt, I didn't like having things that came to an end. I was like, no, I'm not doing it. Cause so you're afraid I of just, progress almost. Almost. Yeah. It felt as if I was just afraid of progress. Um, so then she sent me a lot of stuff on self-sabotage and she said, look at this. I think this is what you're describing. I can't lie to this day. I still haven't opened the resources she gave me, but a lot of the tools that I was given, I didn't use, okay. uh, but I need to use, and I know they will help. And, but it's almost as if I'm saving them for a rainy day. It's raining now. <laughs> I should okay. use them now. Maybe don't listen to that beastie voice tune then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> Honestly. What has been the best book or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? You know what? I can't lie. I don't read. Like, <laughs> you I don't have a lot of time to, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't read. And that's something that I'm trying to change. I'm trying to change. So yeah, I mean, probably if I had read some sort of mental health book, it probably would have helped. <laughs> it would have probably helped a lot more. But then I think I, hmm, I think I, one thing that does help me is this idea of escapism and reading and taking in content which has got nothing to do with what I'm going through, just because I'm like, I want to escape for a bit. Oh, I was watching The Morning Show on Apple TV. And one pet peeve that I have with programs right now is programs like series dramas mentioning COVID. Because I'm trying to escape from my current reality. <laughs> and like, I was watching, I was watching this series and they were like, one of the characters were like, oh my goodness, there's this new illness going around. And they're saying that we have to social distance. And I'm like, oh, I'm not watching this. I'm not watching this. No, no, I wanted to escape. I wanted to escape. And you're talking about social distancing, get out of here. So any content that I consume, I do, I do want to escape. And I think that's how I deal with my mental health in the best way. And as a final question, this is a very broad one as well. What mm. more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life, all nationalities feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mm. mental health if they want to do it? I think what we could do is, it's all the cliche stuff, but is stop having conversations or stop portraying men as being these big, fearless beings that can handle anything and blah blah because we're human man like like we are human and I think I think it does stem from as young as childhood I think it's stop teaching like this saying boys will be boys stop viewing young boys as like oh we're growing up to be a man and to be a man you've got to be strong and you've got to fight and you've got to... no tell them like listen there are going to be moments in your life when you cry here's how you deal with it or there are going to be moments in your life when you get scared Here's how you deal with it. There are going to be moments in your life where you get confused and you don't know what to do. Here's how you deal with it. And I think that's where the solution is. I think if we talk to young boys and we hear what they've got to say and we teach them and give them the tools on how to become better and how to deal with emotions, then we then grow or we then sort of, what's the word I'm looking for? We then grow men who are open to talking about those kind of things. If you've been doing it since you were a kid, then you'll have no problems doing it as an adult. And I think that's why, for example, people my age aren't great at talking about it because as kids, and this is why I love kids of today, they are having mental health discussions at school. Mental health is being discussed at school, how to deal with anxiety and all that kind of stuff is all being discussed. In school, I, can't, I feel like the first time I had a mental health conversation, 
in an educational setting might have been university. Like mental health wasn't discussed before that point and probably would have helped me a lot if it was. On that note, DeGraff Mensa, thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast. Uh, you know what? I've enjoyed myself and I love any opportunity that I get to just chat is <laughs> is good. Like I know my throat is going to hate me for it later, but that's a future me problem. That ain't a problem for me right now. But now, nah, all jokes aside, thank you for having me on, man. Like I proper, I really enjoyed this. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thank you to DeGraft for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for checking in with me. You can follow DeGraft on social media in the show notes. You obviously see him on your TV screens on a daily basis if you want to watch Newsround. I'll sign us off as always by saying, remember guys, if you've liked what you've heard, give it a share on social media. Tell your friends, tell your work colleagues, tell your family about it. If you're feeling generous, you can write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and help us out with those glorious algorithms. If you want to support us further, you can go on our Patreon. That's www.patreon.com slash uk. Every penny really does count. I really do appreciate every single person who donates. If you don't want to do that and you want to make a one-off donation, you can also do that at our GoFundMe link that is in our link tree and across all our channels. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember guys, it is always okay to vent.